0: Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone here on this odd March day. Let's, uh, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time as we study a new series on the last words of Jesus before he died. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for loving us. We thank you so much for even knowing us and for making yourself accessible through Jesus is it's an utterly absurd reality that we humbly and almost and desperately come to as we look at these words that Jesus spoke give us eyes to see what is truly there and give us uh, a resonation with the heart of our Savior as we look at these last words that he spoke before everything changed for all eternity Father we love you give us hearts that are teachable this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're looking at a new series called the famous last words. Now I have read to the end of the book and I know that Jesus didn't stop talking at the cross. That's just kind of a catchy title for us. We know that he talks after he he rises again. He rose from the grave and he speaks in those moments. And he also speaks to John in his revelation. And we know that he will be speaking in glory when we go there and we're face to face. So we know that that's true. uh, But we're looking at these seven sayings. There's seven individual sayings that Jesus spoke while he was hanging on the cross. And if they are significant enough to be written down by the gospel authors, then they're significant enough for us to know why. Why say those things and why record those things? So we're going to spend this lead-up time to Easter looking at those things. Uh, But as a preface, this series is going to have a different structure than what we normally do. The primary way you study the Bible and the primary way you preach and teach through the Bible is what's called expositionally. That you go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book as the Bible is written. Because we know that God not only inspires the individual words, but how the words are ordered. So that is the, the primary, main way we study the scriptures. Because that's the way that it's laid out. But a subsequent way, kind of a supplementary way to study the Bible, it's what's called a systematic way or a topical way that you take one truth and you're going to bring all correlating verses to bear on that truth. So think of it to illustrate it like this. You think you got a cookie pan with the raised edges and you got a jar full of multicolored beads. And then the divine jar pourer pours all those beads into that pan. And so now you have beads and colors mixed all up all over the place. The way we normally would study that is we would go row by row looking at each individual bead, how they connect and line up, and then just keep going down the rows. That would be the normal way. But it's also helpful to find all the red beads and brush them all up into a pile and see what are red beads all about. What we never do is just pull out a random bead and say, let's just talk about this and pontificate wildly. We never do that. But what we're doing today is we're going to brush all one color together and see what the Bible has to say on that. And that's what this series is going to be like. So just wanted to preface so you notice and there's a significant style change. So these sayings of Jesus were spoken from the cross and the cross is central to the Christian faith. If there is no cross, then there is no salvation. We know that from multiple verses. First Corinthians 1 18 points out for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It is the power of God. Ephesians 2.16, as Paul is referencing the, the unification of Jews and Gentiles into one body, he says, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. If there is no cross covered in the blood of the lamb atop the hill of Calgary, then we of all people are most to be pitied. If that place is not real and that did not happen in time and space, then we, of all people, are most to be pitied. So the cross is absolutely essential to us. And Christians have understood this since Acts chapter 2, since the church is founded on the day of Pentecost. We've always understood that as the people of God, that the cross is central. Because you have to ask yourself, just on a practical level, why would anybody adopt a symbol of execution as their primary logo? Their primary symbol. Do you know anybody who walks around with a tiny guillotine around their neck? Or do you know anybody who, in their wall and their place of reference, they have a wall of all different shapes and sizes and colors of hypodermic needles used for lethal injection? Or what about a shirt that has the electric chair on it, symbolizing our hope and great joy? That's not, that doesn't happen, but we do that all the time. We have four of them on top of these lids right here. That's a symbol of execution. Why would we adopt that? Why is that so central to our faith? It must be because it is central. There must be a reason for that, and that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And we can even document in history, going back to the second century, when the church decided to make this a massive part of who we are. The cross became so prominent as a symbol for the people of God. And it has been. Forever, because without that cross and the wounds inflicted upon Christ on that cross, we remain dead in our trespasses with no hope of glory, destined for eternal torment without that cross. So on that cross, we have the very righteousness of Christ imputed to us so that we can rightly sing the song that we sang, how deep the father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch, you and I, his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turned his face away as wounds, which marred the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Sons and daughters don't go to glory if the chosen one is not marred. And we're going to be looking at that fact, the centrality of the cross today. So turn to Luke chapter 23 in verse 34. This is the the first saying chronologically that Jesus speaks. If you mash all four gospel accounts together, this is the one that he says first. So we're going to back up to verse 32 to get a running start here in verse 34. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, meaning the hill of Golgotha, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And then here's our, our saying, verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's the one we're going to be looking at today. That's our truth that we're going to bring other verses to bear upon. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus saying that is the fulfillment of a prophecy. Isaiah, years before, centuries before, prophesies that the Messiah will indeed pray for his executioners. In chapter 53 of Isaiah, verse 12, he says, Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The Messiah was always going to pray for his executioners. That was, that was prophesied centuries before who, who is this savior that when he is being tacked, to the wood and hoisted into the air his first thought is those people forgive them that's his first utterance it's not ouch or it's not stop it or it's not why it's them the first thing that he can say is about them us Father, forgive them. Who who is this Savior? This is the the true heart of Christ on display. And he's always been displaying this heart. In Mark chapter 6, verse 34, Jesus in this moment says, When he went ashore and saw a great crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. That word compassion is a a gut level word. It's like a rumbling in the bowels, like a, a feeling, an urging towards these people. So he sits down and teaches them this compassion on them. And then Jesus says about himself in Mark ten forty five: for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When God puts on flesh and dwells among us, he's here to serve others, not be served, and to give himself up to pay the ransom. This is the heart of Christ displayed in this first utterance. Father, forgive them. This is the heart that he's always, he's always had. He's the perfect suffering servant. He not only abstains from speaking revenge, he pleads with his father to redeem them, to extend them forgiveness. That's, that's the, the, the utterances of his heart. And he fulfills his own command by doing this. He says in Matthew 5, and you also recount in Luke 6, He says, Matthew 5, 43 and 45, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. When it came time for Jesus to practice what he preached, he did so flawlessly. He prayed for those who persecuted him. You can't get more persecuted than being executed. And so when that's happening, he prays for them. He, he prays on their behalf, and that saying from the cross is the expression of the boundless compassion of his divine grace. Father, forgive them, forgive them now before we press on into our our major section, let me step into the middle of a hornet 's nest real quick: Are you so consumed with railing against contrary ideologies or politics or the like? that you cannot pray for those who persecute you or you cannot pray for those who you perceive are persecuting you because I see a raising, a swelling tidal wave in America, in the American church that we are so rabidly opposed to other people that we cannot pray for him and that tidal wave is going to crash on the shore and we are going to lose our witness within our own borders because if we are pleased if we're so busy raging against the contrary ideology I doubt we have any concern whatsoever for souls because you have in your own mind been able to twist people into being your enemy That think differently than you or would vote differently than you. Would you be pleased to see Democrats or Republicans or Libertarians or whoever condemned? Would that please you? Would that bring joy to you? Because if so, please remove the title from any of that kind of behavior that is called Christian. Because that is taking a position that Jesus does not take. Jesus had one enemy and has one enemy. And it was not a single individual involved in his execution. It is Satan alone that we wage war not against flesh and blood. But against rulers and authorities and principalities of this dark world. Amen. That we have one enemy and it's never a person. The person is never the enemy. They are always the objective. They are always The mission field, for they know not what they do. So let's get that squared away that we pray for those who persecute us. We don't rail against them and long for their destruction. Yeah, if you want to talk further about that in dialogue, you can reach me at email at hattenberger <laughs> at tomballbible.church. <laughs> so, well, let's move on to our main section here. What we're going to do is we're going to ask this text four questions because it begs at least four questions. There's obviously a lot more, but we're going to look at four. The first one is, did the Jews and Romans really not know what they were doing? Were they truly oblivious to what they were doing because Jesus says, "Father, forgive them for they know not what they do." Let's read an example of this. John chapter 11. Turn with me to John chapter 11 verse 45. <clears throat> we're going to get a run and start at this example of this ignorance. So here's an example of Caiaphas, the high priest. And Jesus, his time is coming quickly in John's gospel here. And he says, it's better if one guy dies and so the rest of us don't have to die. And then, then John closes the quote and says, he didn't even know what he was saying. He prophesied this divine truth about Jesus thinking one way, but it meant something totally greater than that. Far greater than that that yes, one man was going to die and save everybody. So he had no idea about who this Jesus really was. And Peter says in Acts chapter three verse 17 and 18, he says, "And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. he 's talking to a Jewish group. I know you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, He has thus fulfilled. And this reference pops up again. The apostles say something like this again in Acts 13, 14, 17, and 26. So the apostles are pretty squared away. They did not know who Jesus really was and what it was they were actually doing. They they were unaware of these things. Yes, they knew that this alleged blasphemer was going to be put to death and he was possibly could be interpreted as an insurrectionist leading revolts against the government. But they were ignorant as to who he truly was and they were oblivious as to what this moment in history was. Paul confirms that in 1 Corinthians 2.8 very straightforwardly. He says, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. He said, none of them knew what was really going on. And if they did, they wouldn't have done it. So Jesus can say in all honesty, they know not what they do. Now, this prayer that Jesus speaks in Luke 23 does not absolve them of guilt. It's just an awareness For us, that they did not know what they were doing. They didn't fully comprehend the horrible evil that they were involved in and that forgiveness was soon going to be available to them. That they also didn't know. So, and and this is consistent with the character of God. So, Deuteronomy 19, God tells Moses that when Israel comes into the promised land, I want you to set aside three places as cities of refuge. And what these cities of refuge were to be in this time period were for people who had accidentally, unintentionally without will kill someone. So this is manslaughter. You're chopping down trees and you accidentally kill a brother and his family and friends are coming for revenge. You run to the city of refuge that you did not slay with knowledge. You did so in ignorance and God has provided a way for your life to be spared. He established that for Israel centuries before. And this is consistent with God's character at the cross. Father, forgive them. They did not know what they do. Jesus doesn't just call down judgment on them and immediately disintegrate them at that moment. He says, open the gates of the city of refuge for them. They don't know what it is that they're doing. God makes a clear distinction between murderers, true and out murderers who receive swift justice... In the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and then also manslaughter. And Jesus puts them in that category. He says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And little did he know, they know that when they're in earshot of this, that Jesus himself would be that refuge, that he would be this city of refuge. He would be the means in which they are forgiven. So, yes, they did not know what they were doing. In verse, next one, second question we're going to ask. And this we have to ask. So they don't know what they're doing. And this is God's will that Jesus die so that we can be saved. If that is true and they're only participating in what God has already said must happen and they don't know what they're doing. Why do they need forgiveness? They can't do anything else, right? Why then do they need forgiveness? Why is Jesus praying that they be forgiven? Aren't they just doing the will of God? Well, let's establish this from the words of the apostles who were right after this in the book of Acts. Remember, we read in Acts chapter 3, verse 17 and 18 about they didn't really know what they were doing. Well, the very next verse in chapter 3, verse 19, Peter says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. They're guilty. And then Acts chapter 2, his first sermon, when the church is founded on the day of Pentecost, chapter 2, verse 23 and 22 He attributes guilt to them later on in the same sermon in the same chapter, verse 36 and 38. Peter says, let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, don't worry about it. You're good. You, you didn't have a, You didn't have a choice. Now he says, repent and be baptized. So it's clear in Peter's mind right after this in the book of Acts in chapters two and three, that though they were in God's will, they were still guilty. So what we have here is a classic tension that we experience in studying the Bible as a word of God, that the sovereignty of God does not negate the culpability or responsibility of men. The sovereignty of God does not negate the culpability of men. How? How could you just like say that and then just move on? Well, Romans 1, 18-32 stands as a proper text for us in this. Three times, as Paul is delineating the depravity of man, he says that God gave them over. What is man doing? Man has exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Man has worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Man professes to be wise but is a fool. And he has exchanged the truth for anything else and god gave them up so when evil runs rampant it is because god has lessened or removed restraining grace that all evil needs the second thessalonians chapter three talks about this their restrainer being lifted and we know that to be the Holy Spirit in that context. But there's this idea throughout Scripture of restraining grace because you have to ask yourself, why is everything not as bad as it could be? Why? why? If man is that corrupted and that depraved, then why is everywhere not Somalia? Why is everywhere not Soviet Russia? Restraining grace. So when evil runs rampant and God has just removed He has given over. He has lifted restraint, and man is free to do what he does. Because were these men who involved in the execution of Christ, were they just like, you know, I don't really feel like I want to kill this guy, but okay, let's do it. No, they're shouting in the two paragraphs before, crucify him. And Pilate ties time after time. He's not guilty of anything. He hasn't done anything. And they're like, we don't care. Kill him. So they want to do this because restraint has been lifted. That's how we can reconcile as best we can as finite humans, the sovereignty of God and the culpability of man, which ultimately thus does end in a tension that we have to let exist. But that's the best explanation we can get from Scripture. So they are indeed guilty and they are in need of the forgiveness that Jesus prays for them. Father, forgive them because they genuinely need it. So... And then you have to ask Jesus, okay, so he's, he's, in, he's saying this. Our third question, does Jesus have the position to be able to ask for this? Is he in any position to bring this about or to mediate this deal? Can I ask for forgiveness for somebody else like this? Stephen seems to say the same kind of thing in Acts chapter 7 when he's being martyred as the first martyr of the church. He says something similar to, Father, forgive them. They they don't even really know what they're doing. They don't know who I am. But he prays that prayer in the same way that we would pray for a lost family member or a lost friend. That we want them to come to Christ. Please grant them forgiveness. But Jesus is in a different position. So what does this mean? When we think of this as the absolvement of guilt and forgiveness being handed down, can a person do that? Can a priest do that? What do we do with that Catholic confessional thing? Well, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and the man Christ Jesus. So if you put a priest between me and Jesus, you've added a layer of mediation that the Bible does not. Therefore, that is unbiblical. Only Christ can absolve us from guilt and only Christ mediates between us and the Father. James 5 tells us to confess our sins to one another so that we may be healed. But that's a healing between the body, the strife between us. It's not an absolution of guilt. That I have the ability to forgive your sins and take away the guilt from that sin. I don't. I can forgive you for that, but I can't forgive you in the sense that God can do that. That has to come through Christ. And he can serve as our mediator and rightly as our advocate because he was the propitiation that placated God's wrath. He was a sacrifice that appeased the wrath of God. John 2, chapter 1, or 1 John 2, chapter 1, tells us that. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He stands between you and God, me and God, as our one and only mediator. So he can rightly ask and offer forgiveness. As he says, Father, forgive them. For they don't know what we do. So then this leads us to the preeminent question of this passage. The preeminent question of this passage that we would have to get to. And and we need to be able to answer this question as the church because people are asking it. People are asking this question, and this is almost into the realm of an apologetics type idea, but we need to be able to answer this question concerning the cross. And this question is this, why is forgiveness dependent upon Christ's work on the cross? Why is that? dependent upon that because didn't jesus tell his disciples to forgive constantly how many times do i have to forgive my brother 70 times seven which is a hebrew way of saying a bunch all the time always forgive and there's no mention of that like yeah okay so when you forgive your brother you're gonna have to die to be able to forgive them or he's gonna have to die or something there's no mention of death in that it's just forgive them so why can't God just do what he's told us to do? Why can't he be as generous and as unqualitative in his forgiveness as he told us to do? That's the question that we have to answer. Why does forgiveness have to go right through the middle of the cross? Why can't we go around or above or under this, this craw? Why do we have to have this bloody cross? We need to be able to answer to that. Luckily our bible does answer that. John Stott wrote a book, uh, he died maybe about 20 years ago. He's an old Anglican guy faithful to the word. He wrote a book called The Cross of Christ and he he says like the, that the uh, the person who supposes that God can just be that generous and generous in quotes with forgiveness doesn't understand two things. They don't rightly have not they have not rightly considered the weight of their sin. And they have not rightly considered the majesty of God. If we assume that God can just say, yeah, don't worry about it. We have misunderstood two things, the weight of sin and the majesty of God. The weight of sin in Romans 8, 7 and 8 gives us a good picture of the weight of sin. It says, for the mind that is set on the flesh, meaning a lost person, an unbelieving mind, is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So we are hostile to God. We are opposed diametrically to God. So if, your friend, if I lie to my friends and I go to them and say, hey, I lied to you. They are biblically bound to forgive me in that sense. Christian friends, Right. As if, if they lied to me, I would, I'd forgive them. I have to do that because the Bible tells me to do that. And I can do that and they can do that to me because they didn't author the ninth commandment. And they are not the wellspring of all truth. But God did author the ninth commandment. And he is the wellspring of all truth. And he is the very essence of righteousness. So there's not a direct corollary between me forgiving friends and God being able to forgive humans. It's a very different ball of wax. So this, I got a long quote here and I want you to hang with me through this and pay attention to some of these and we can mine some nuggets out of this. This is from John Stott's book, The Cross of Christ. He says, every sin is a breach of what Jesus called the first and greatest commandment. Not just by failing to love God with all our being, but by actively refusing to acknowledge and obey him as our creator and Lord. We have rejected the position of dependence that our createdness inevitably involves and made a bid for independence. Worse still, we have dared to proclaim our self-dependence, our autonomy, which is to claim the position occupied by God alone. Sin is not a regrettable lapse from conventional standards. Its essence is hostility to God issuing an active rebellion against Him. Did you hang on those those words there? What is what is sin? Every sin is a defiance of the greatest commandment. That you are saying, I am not just, I didn't just fail to give you everything. I have pulled you down. And made you dependent and I will be independent. I'm trying to occupy a place that only God can occupy. Sin is not just what he calls a regrettable lapse. Just kind of a bummer. We've redefined sin to be just whoopsies and boo-boos and mistakes and slip-ups. And that's incorrect. Spurgeon says that we need to beware of light thoughts of sin. And giving them dainty names Because in his very Victorian way, he says, do not little strokes fell lofty oaks. That tiny little axe is what knocks down that massive tree. So this sin is not negligible. It is not nothing. And make no mistake that if you got saved at five or 55, your heart was just as hostile and just as anti-God as the most vile of pagans. That's the truth of all of us, and we need to understand the weight of this sin so that we can realize why the cross must be the path of forgiveness. We have to understand what this sin is, that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seeks for God. There is none who does good. Romans 3. We, we must adhere to that and believe that the seriousness of our sin demanded a blood purchase price. Hebrews 9, 22 it says, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Point blank. There's no way around that. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There's no ultimate forgiveness of sins. And then the majesty of God. So that's understanding the weight of sin. And if you think you can get around the cross and be forgiven, you don't understand the majesty of God either. Far too often we make God a desperate recruiter to some pathetic cause. That he's just clamoring for anybody to please join with me. We, we make him out to be that. And this endemic view of God is so low that modern people don't even feel the need to be atheists. Because there's nothing to be antagonistic against. This is this rising, this burgeoning sociological group called the nuns. N-O-N-E-S. They believe in nothing. Like, Why even consider religion or heaven or hell or eternity or, or right and wrong in an ultimate sense? Because all they've ever seen of God, all they've ever seen modeled or heard from God, he's just some kind of easygoing guru or just some desperate recruiter with some pathetic philanthropic cause. So why even be anti that? That's not even worth taking a stand against. We've underestimated and underappreciated the majesty of God. But Peter in first Peter one, that whole chapter he's talking about to Christians to live your lives in reverent fear before God. And Job, when Job gets a little too entitled, a little too self-assured towards the end of the book that he's not wrong. And he's he's really over puffing a little bit on his own righteousness. God thunders forth in Job 38 and says, all right, Job, gird up your loins like a man. And you're going to instruct me. Where were you when the earth was founded? Where were you when I created Behemoth? Where were you when I made the mountains rise out of the dirt? Because Joe was thinking a little too highly of himself, a little too lowly of God. So this majesty of God cannot be lost on us. Here's another long quote from Stott and hang in it because it's good. It says it must be said that our evangelical emphasis upon the atonement the atonement meaning what Christ did on the cross is dangerous if we come upon it too quickly we learn to appreciate the access to God that Christ has won for us only after we have first seen God's inaccessibility to sinners. We can cry hallelujah with authenticity only after we have first cried, woe is me for I am lost. In Dale's words, it is partly because sin does not provoke our own wrath that we do not believe that sin provokes wrath of God. Man, he's, he's dead on. We come to, to, to salvation so quickly, and it's given in a quick pitch, like we're salesmen, that we don't elaborate on the majesty of God and the weight of sin. But those first forgiven at that scene on the cross, the thief and the centurion, were painfully aware of both of those things. They were both involved in the crucifixion, hurling insults, And then they come around and the thief's like, I am a sinner, please remember me. And the centurion, when he sees the majesty of God displayed and the acts that happened when Jesus breathes his last, says, surely this is the son of God. They did not, they came upon uh, the truth of that quickly, but it wasn't hasty and it wasn't empty. They came upon that truth rightly. Recently, there was a uh, religious, I'm not going to put the label Christian on his music Uh, A musician named Michael Gungor who tweeted, where all wisdom is gathered, on Twitter. He tweeted these things about the cross, and I want to read them to you. Let's listen to these. He said three things. First one, I would love to hear more artists who sing to God and fewer who include a father murdering his son in that endeavor. Here's the first one. The second one. If you can't think of anything to sing to God other than gratitude for taking away your shame away through bloodshed, then stop singing and look around. Number two, and this is the third one. In my perspective, it's the most evil view of God that is possible to have. This guy puts out Christian music that the cross is the most evil view of God it is possible to have. Why would you even sing about that? A father murdering his son. Consequently, I would trust your average modern Christian musician with my theology just as soon as I would trust a toddler to fly me cross country in a 747. Just as a side note. So when you see Evan, would you thank him? Because Evan is not like that at all. Evan has a deep theology that we enjoy through music. That's a rare grace that we are given here at TBC. So, because that, what he was saying in those tweets, that's not the true gospel. J.C. Ryle, the old uh, bishop in England, he said, "Miserable indeed is that religious teaching which calls itself Christian yet contains nothing of the cross." That teaching is miserable, and it is false. That has no cross because Peter says plainly in first Peter two twenty four, he himself bore our sins in his body. Where on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds, you have been healed. If he has no wounds, then I am not healed. If Jesus just embraces the shame of the cross that's inherent in that act, if he embraces that and he runs from it, he runs around the Garden of Gethsemane, he doesn't want to go to do any of this, then we all perish. But he didn't. Hebrews twelve two says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He went right up to it. And it seems odd that we have to defend so vehemently this gruesome, horrible act. It would just be more pleasant to not talk about this death this execution all the time and have all these songs that are all about it. But we cannot do that and be faithful to the Bible and we cannot do that and be saved. There is no salvation out from the cross. So we echo with Paul when he speaks to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 2, 2. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I knew nothing else but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was my message. That's all I had to offer. We resonate with that. And we, we cling to that. And we have for centuries. We have since Acts chapter 2. We have to go back to that cross. Some of our greatest songs are about that. In my, in my family, we read, uh, we have family devotions nightly. And, and we, oftentimes we break open a hymnal and we'll sing really old songs because the theology in there, I want it burned in my kids' brains. And one of their favorite hymns right now is 300 Years Old, written by Sir Isaac Watts. And it starts out with, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head to such a worm as I? And the chorus is, At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away, it was there, by faith, I received my sight. And now I am happy all the day. Father, we we do come to the cross. We do sing of this gruesome, brutal death because there is no forgiveness of sins outside of it. That we cannot be saved if Jesus dodges the cross. Give us the strength and the wherewithal to hold faithfully to that, to cling to the cross. That it wasn't what, naysayers and say is divine child abuse that it was the only way a righteous God can forgive the horrible sins of people and you willingly did it for us and and you went all the way to it saying forgive them if they don't know what they do we can never earn that we can never deserve that but we worship you for that thank you in Christ's name Amen.